first half of John's Gospel retells stories and signs that take place over three years of Jesus' ministry in the first century. The second half of the Gospel, more or less, focuses on Jesus' last week, and a large portion of that is set on the night that he was betrayed. In this part of the spiritual gospel, we will explore what scholars have named the Farewell Discourse. It is a large block of teaching set on the night before the crucifixion. In the story, it sort of functions as Jesus' last lecture to his disciples. He tries to prepare them for what's to come, he gives them some final instructions, and he encourages them to wait and trust. And even though this teaching is firmly embedded in a remote culture in the distant past, many of its themes remain relevant for us today. Join us as we consider the Farewell Discourse. Okay, so over the last couple weeks, we have been exploring what scholars have termed Jesus's Farewell Discourse in the Gospel of John. This is a set of teaching from John 14 through John 17. And within these handful of chapters, there's so much dense, theology that it would take us years to unpack. We're not going to take years. I'm hopeful that we can sync up our study in John with Easter, so that would mean we have to move on with a little bit of pace here. Um, But these chapters, they are filled with all sorts of theological themes and teachings where Jesus is instructing his disciples prior to his death and his resurrection about what is going to take place and also attempting to convey some sort of trust in him that the disciples would be able to trust and have faith in what it is that Jesus is doing. Over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at a pretty um, well-known passage, or at least it's got a couple of verses that are well-known in it. Uh, And I'm gonna go ahead and read those verses to get us into this new set of texts that we have for this evening. So John 14, beginning in verse one, it says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas responds and says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And we sort of talked about Thomas setting up this teaching from Jesus where he gets into an even more well-known passage. The first four verses or so are pretty typical hope-filled passages, even if we kind of pushed against the grain there as to what it is that Jesus was actually communicating to his people. We tend to think that this is like a disembodied spirit flying off into the celestial abode, but it seems like a better reading in John is going to push back against that a little bit because what Jesus is referring to is, hey, in a a few days post-resurrection, I'm going to show up again and you will be with me as I am with the Father. I will be present with you. Thomas is asking some questions because he doesn't really understand what's going on, which occasions Jesus' um, very famous uh, response He says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And again, we have some disciples who don't really know what it is that Jesus is communicating here. Last week, we unpacked the no one comes to the Father except through me and the classic questions that that passage evokes from normal, thoughtful, well-read people, much like yourselves, okay? We unpacked some of that, 
Jesus responds, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is a huge theme throughout John's uh, gospel the relationship between Jesus and the Father and what Jesus is at pains to communicate to his disciples is that they are one, that they are unified. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. The first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John is what scholars have referred to as the book of signs. These are things that Jesus is doing to communicate to his audience who he is, what sort of relationship he has with the Father, and how people can identify him on the scheme of what is going on in this story. There's all of these miracles that take place, these teachings that take place, and Jesus is communicating to his audience, I and the Father are one, the things that I say are the things that the Father is saying through me. The things that I'm doing, the Father is doing through me. He's attempting to communicate this, although people have sort of had a mixed reaction to what Jesus is all about. The signs that he's doing, not everyone gets on board. Sometimes we very callously look at the Bible and say, how could you not believe what Jesus is doing here? Feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus from the dead. It's so clear. I would caution us to pause for a moment because usually we too are a bit uh, reticent to see what God is doing in our midst, but let's leave that off to the side here. John now is moving from this, uh, these first 11 verses in chapter 14 to a new set of teaching from Jesus, and we can see this because he begins uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, or very truly, I say unto you. In the Greek, it's amen, amen. Say amen, amen. amen, amen. Don't you just feel scholarly when you do that? <laughs> nope, okay. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. I'm gonna read that again because these are, these are some loaded verses that we're gonna to attempt to unpack this evening, although I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. If you're going to be looking for answers, grab a cup of coffee on your way out and have a good day. I think we've got the cookies back there, they're ready for you. See you Wednesday. Uh, tonight we're gonna have some thoughtful reflection on what's going on in this passage, but answers we will not have. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I want you to <laughs> contemplate that for a moment, that, that verse there, and just maybe figure out the questions that you have in your mind as you read that, because I will want them from you in a, in a moment's time. Verse 13, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I'll do it. 
It'll also be good for you guys to, to gather up your questions there about this particular passage, because this is where we're gonna be hanging out tonight. Now, as I said, this, this verse 12, it's a hinge verse, and it kind of launches us into a series of uh, reflections. Some people would take this through, I believe, verse 24. Others would take it all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 31, if my numbers are, are correct there. But basically, this is a hinge passage where it's, it's dealing with what comes before, but it's also launching us into a new set of texts. And before we get too far, let's just pause here and say the word of God for the people of God. With some of my commentary mixed in there and my hopefully funny pictures as well. Okay, um, Marianne Mae Thompson says that when we're going from verse 12 through the end of the chapter, there's all sorts of promises, uh, very theologically <laughs> dense promises that Jesus is making to his disciples. And it's important for them to hear these things given what is about to happen, just so that we're all on the same page. What is about to happen? He's been betrayed. Thank you, yes, yes, the, the crucifixion. That wasn't, a, that wasn't a trick question, Gianna. That was just, that was just a question. What, where's the story going, Arthur? What's happening next? Jesus is going to die, yeah. So here, uh, what he's attempting to do is to teach his disciples all these things and to kind of give them some things to hang their hat on in the future. Uh, Thompson describes these as Jesus will petition the Father and he will give his disciples another paraclete, another advocate, another advisor, another comforter. This is code words for the spirit that will show up in the lives of the disciples. The spirit of the living Christ will show up and will indwell these followers and it's good that Jesus goes because this can then happen. This is something that John comes back to over and over. Jesus will not leave his disciples orphans. This is a really cool image here, but he will come to them. He will be present to them. He will be with them. This is some of the reason why it's not just cool to be floated, floating into the ethereal uh, heavenlies, Jesus is going to be present with his disciples here and now. It's not just, hold on guys, when you die, cool stuff. It's, it's here and now. Because Jesus loves, his disciples will also love. Jesus will love his disciples and will reveal himself to them. Jesus will leave them his peace. These are all really important promises. And we also have these two that frame the, the very beginning of this uh, passage that we looked at. Those who believe in Jesus will do greater works than he has done. And Jesus will do whatever his disciples ask in his name. These are the two passages or the two themes that we'll be looking at in these handful of verses here in 12 through 14. And the first one that I want us to consider is that those who believe in Jesus will do greater works than he has done. Now, this has a precedent in the other Gospels and in uh, the book of Acts. We've got a text like Matthew chapter 21. Um, this is around the time when Jesus is cleansing the temple. It says, in the morning when he returned to the city, he was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found <laughs> nothing at all on it but leaves. And then he says to the fig tree, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I tell you, I assume, amen, amen, verily, verily, I say unto you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, with faith, you will receive 
How have some branches of the church interpreted this passage? What's the hinge words there? With faith. So we have these moments where family members are sick and we have people petitioning the Lord for healing and attempting to evoke as much faith as possible because if they have the faith that is necessary, then Jesus will answer the prayer and that we will receive what we ask for because we have demonstrated faith. This is a really problematic passage because of the way that it's been interpreted. And what usually ends up happening is we have guilt-ridden people who have watched family members or someone die and they begin to question and say, is it my fault? Did I not have the faith that was necessary to bring about the healing in the life of the one that I love? And we see how some people have, have carried that stress, anxiety, uh, shame perhaps, guilt perhaps, and they haven't been able to deal with it because they've been looking at a verse like this and reading it as though Jesus is saying, if you guys just have enough faith, then not only can you pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea, hopefully this isn't irreverent, whatever that means, or you can pray for whoever is sick and bring about the necessary healing in whatever their health situation is. In this room, I believe there's thoughtful people that might wrestle with this. Can I get amen? Amen. Okay. And if that's not you, then great. Um, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Mark 16. Now, Mark 16, this is a weird passage for a number of reasons. Uh, But most scholars would say that this is an ending of the book of Mark that is late. The author of Mark probably did not write this ending. The author of Mark actually has this this moment where the women go and see uh, that Jesus is gone from the tomb and they leave and the last words are something like, frightened and alone, the women go curtain, and then it's over. The the book ends in the fear of the people that have seen that Jesus is now raised from the dead. There's two different types of people in the world. One type loves that ending, because it's like, whew, yeah. It's It's like the end of Inception, and the totem is spinning, and you think you see a wobble, but you don't. You think you, you want it, but there's this tension of like, I don't know how this ends or what happens here. And then there's other people that hate Inception because they want a Hallmark movie where everything gets wrapped up into a nice, neat bow and the tree farmer, the local tree farmer, marries the city girl who's a lawyer who had to come home to like deal with her dad's will or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they want it all to be wrapped up. And Mark has this sort of, tension where the original author seems to just leave it hanging. Now we know that it's not just uh, trembling and alone, the women went, and I think the last line is, and they told no one, that's how it ends. Clearly they don't, I mean, they, they, they do tell people eventually, because we know this story, but people didn't like that, so they added a couple of endings, and this is one of the additional endings in the Gospel of Mark, and it gets really freaky, okay? He says to them, go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The one who believes and is baptized will will be saved, but the one who does not believe will be condemned. That sounds pretty Christian, right? We're good up to this point? 
Yes? Yeah. Okay, thanks. Kathy, Kathy's with me. And these signs will accompany those who believe. By using my name, they will cast out demons. We're starting to get a little bit angsty here. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes in their hands. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. Uh, Brian, get me the box over there. We're going to do an experiment. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They will lay hands uh, on the sick and they will, they will recover. This is a strange passage because uh, it's talking about snake handling and drinking crazy potions and you'll be fine if you believe in Jesus. But here, there is something to the, the authors, the, the new editors or the later editors, I should say, saying that when you follow Jesus, crazy stuff will ensue. The book of Acts has crazy stuff all over the place. I've got one story queued up here. Uh, this is about Peter and John. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the beautiful gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him as John did and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter says, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Did anybody just flash back to that kid's song? Walking and leaping and praising God. That's a thing. I'm sure of it, unless it's a... You didn't hallucinate it. Okay, thank you. That's good. That's good. Uh, so they're walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God, uh, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is something that the apostles do. They walk by people, and their very shadow will heal them. We see throughout the text these hints that the disciples and the apostles and the early Christians will do great and crazy things that in our context, we don't know how to quantify. I don't know if this is just me, but my shadow has never healed anyone. You guys? No? Okay. Uh, there's things that we don't know how to take from the pages of Scripture and to apply them or see if this is just something that was locked into the first century or if this is just some sort of mythological interpretation of things that were going on and we shouldn't expect them to be happening in our day. And we have Jesus saying here in John chapter 14, very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. What are you envisioning when Jesus says, you will do the works that I do? What does that evoke for you? The miracles that he's doing, yeah, we can rattle off a few of those, water into wine, feeding the 5,000, walking on water. I know y'all, if you have a pool, you've tried to walk on water, right? You've just tried to get, get that running start and see how far you can get before you fall into it. One of these days, you're gonna make it. I just know it. What else do we envision Jesus doing? The works that he's that he's doing in the pages of scripture beyond just the miraculous. Yeah, and a lot of those are the, the, the miraculous, right? Where he's like touching the leper and, and bringing a sense of touch where they have been ostracized from the community. Jesus seems to have no regard for, that's an overstatement, but very little regard for 
purity, impurity in the first century. The woman with the issue of blood, the, the, the leper, like these people that have been moved outside of the community, Jesus welcomes with open arms. Even Zacchaeus, the one who has been ripping off his people through um, toll collecting, taxes. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to your house today. Another classic kids song there. What else do we see Jesus doing or what do we envision Jesus doing? The works that he says we will do. What do they include? Instructing, yeah, teaching. Anything else? Being present, uh, helping the marginalized and the oppressed in whatever tangible ways that we're able to. I think that we might envision some of these, these issues, but really when it gets to this part, and in fact, we will do greater works than these, what do we then envision? Am I just alone in this? Every time I've ever read this passage, and this is a neat experiment here that shows how uh, you know, confined into the Christian world I am. Every time I read a text like this, I immediately think, oh, whatever Jesus did miracle-wise, we're gonna trump that. Whatever sort of cool thing he did, we're gonna be able to do that. And I think most youth group kids, the way they read this is, Jesus healed people, bring me all your sick. I'll do it too. I'll do whatever Jesus was doing and then take it to this next level because Jesus says so. And what this usually does, it brings about a separation in how people are looking at this passage from people that are thinking that this has to do with the miraculous gifts and other people that would say, maybe not because of the world in which we live and the doubts that people have and the way that our life hasn't necessarily shown the fruit of any sort of miraculous stuff taking place in the way that we read it off the pages of scripture. So one scholar says the disciples should do miraculous works through faith. He goes on to couch that a bit by saying, though such signs by themselves, they can't produce adequate faith and they must be supplemented with proclamation, which remains central, as well as continue Jesus's ministry in other respects. So he's saying, yeah, there's an aspect here where we do miraculous stuff, but we also need to do the other things that Jesus is doing as well. Background to Craig Keener. He's got a massive two-volume set called Miracles, where he takes all of the available contemporary evidence and attempts to prove that miracles still happen today, and we have documented evidence that they do. So it makes sense that Craig Keener would say that we should also be doing these things in our daily lives, whether that's praying for blind people or people with disabilities of some sort and and praying for healing and whatever that looks like or just trusting God to do great things through us. Another scholar, however, Raymond Brown, he says, John's thought in this passage, it differs from the other New Testament examples that we've looked at already, in that in John, there is less emphasis on the marvelous character of the greater works that the disciples will do. (coughs) He says the greater refers more to their eschatological character. What this seems to mean for Raymond Brown is that they take on a different note because the work of Jesus has been finished. He has died. He has risen from the dead. And now the things that we are able to do, they're different because they take on a different character. We're able to tell the entire story of Jesus, which Jesus did not tell when he was doing ministry. We're able to say, hey, there was this homeless Jewish rabbi in the first century who lived this life 
filled with miracles and he did the stuff where he cared for people on the margins and the outskirts and he brought them into community and then that community killed him. But he said in the midst of that, that even you killing me cannot separate you from the love that I have for you. And then his love was so powerful that it raised him from the dead so that he could be with us And what Raymond Brown is saying, now we get to tell that story, but maybe I'm alone here. What seems to have happened is what's trumped that story is maybe now we can heal somebody. Maybe now we can pray for this person to have their physical ailments removed because Jesus says that we can do greater things than what he did. So what we envision, at least in in my opinion, it seems though what we envision is therefore what we seek to emulate. So in this passage, if we think that it's reduced to healing, then our MO will be to go and heal people. And if that's the case, then oftentimes it becomes what we have to apologize for because in the Christian community, that healing doesn't always take place. Now, this is where I am going to step behind the the curtain, and I'm going to show you guys what's going on, because I have been one who went to Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade, and I have been one who went to Bible college after that, and seminary after that, and I've worked in churches, so I'm very familiar with what happens when someone in the community becomes sick, and I'm very familiar with what happens that the Christian community rallies around, and they begin to pray with fervency and, and, and faith and hope, and a lot of times, that individual that is receiving the prayers, they die. And then we have to explain what just happened. And in a a sense, apologize for, oh, well, you see, Jesus said we'll do the greater things, uh, which I guess didn't mean in this case that we would heal like he might have, so it must be something different. And we begin to backpedal and we, we separate from the text and what it's saying in order to preserve our understanding of who God is. Does that make sense? I think that there's something a bit more radical even going on in this passage In relation to Jesus, Gail R. O'Day says, works, it refers to all the acts of his ministry, the purpose of which is always to make known the power and character of God. For the disciples to share in Jesus's works is for them to share in the revealing of God to the world. Why is it that we are discontent with this because of our need, perhaps, or our desire to do the cool stuff, too, or what we deem to be the cool stuff, too. When we focus on the healing, when we focus on the miraculous, when we focus on these sorts of things, do we take away from the very simple truth that we are able to share in Jesus's works by sharing in the revealing of God to the world? Have we lessened the miraculousness of this message that God is with you, that God is indwelling you, that God is calling you, 
and is present with you in all of the things that you go through in this life? Have we limited the power of that? When Jesus says, you will do greater things than I ever did, it's good for you that I go away because when I go away, you will receive this spirit that is life, that is hope, that will provide you, uh, like will energize you and will connect you to me in ways that you maybe haven't known you have been connected to me before. Have we minimized that for praying for healing? To share in Jesus's works is to share in the revealing of God to the world. And sometimes that feels non-miraculous. But let me paint you a picture real quick. What Jesus is allowing us to do by sharing this message, he's extending the scope. Some scholars will say that what becomes greater is the fact that in this room, we don't just have one first century Jewish homeless rabbi, we have all of you empowered by the spirit of the one Jewish homeless first century rabbi who's now indwelling in you, empowering you to go and do the work. That doesn't mean that you go and necessarily do the healing, but you invite, you participate, you enact, you become an agent of justice and restoration and hope. You bring awareness to people that they have the spirit of the living God indwelling within them. You allow them to receive love and forgiveness. You invite people into this story that can actually revolutionize and transform their very being. But I fear that we have minimized that for whatever it is that we have been looking for. Jesus is extending the scope. It's not just limited to first century Israel anymore. He's extending the frequency of these works. It's not just him. It's all of you going to do the work. He's extending the audience. It's not just Jews. It is now Gentiles as well. This is completely radical on the world stage. This is something I've been really going off on here recently. But Paul gets a really bad rap a lot of times in the New Testament. Paul is an apostle. He seems to be a bit patriarchal. He has some uh, pretty repressive sexual views. Paul seems to be over here. However, when Paul shows up on the stage, he says, trust the spirit. And he invites the godless, sinful Gentiles to become part of this worldwide movement. And when he does, he says, oh, and by the way, you don't have to be circumcised which all the men in the room say, cool. That's, that's probably good news for an adult male. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the, the food laws. You don't have to follow the Sabbath. You don't have to do these things because the spirit of God is enough for you. This is radical for Paul. And we've lost that. We've lost that this extension of the audience, which includes us, is a miracle in and of itself, and this extension of the invitation. I hope this doesn't seem as Josh just trying to get away with something here by saying, ah, you can't do miracles, so just think this is really cool, when actually it's not. That's not where I'm heading with this, but I do want us to understand that what is being offered here should not be minimized in its power should not be minimized in its importance. 
should not be minimized in the benefits that we receive from it. But I think so often we have minimized this. Again, Gail Day says, the disciples' works which will be done after the events of the hour are therefore greater because they will reveal the completed story of the word made flesh and hence the fullness of God's love. Their works thus are not greater than Jesus' works because of anything intrinsic to the disciples themselves. They're not doing cooler miracles. They're not feeding 5,001 people and Jesus only fed 5,000. They're not raising two dead people from the grave. It's, it's different it's because they belong to this new time period that has been ushered in by Jesus. It's this, they know the end of the story. This is a terrible example. But can you imagine not watching the last 10 minutes of The Sixth Sense and then it just ends? You're like, what was that all about? What was the point? That seems to be like what's happening here. They know the end of the story and it's revolutionized everything. Y'all know the end of the story. You know what Jesus has invited us into. And if we could just catch that, if we could just glimpse that. For those of you in the room that have never seen The Sixth Sense, I would encourage you to go and watch that, not only to catch all of my great sermon illustrations, but it's a, it's a dynamite piece of filmmaking. Don't watch many of his other films, but that, that's, that's one that's worth it. But if we could just catch this vision of who Jesus is including here to be excited by what is um, available to us, perhaps we might not get so worked up about the miracles question. To me, it seems that when Jesus says, you will do greater things than these, he's not saying you will do greater miracles than I have done. But the time in which you guys are will be better and it will be more um, impactful because of what you will have that people prior to have not had. I don't know, I feel like for me, this is something that's still a work in progress because I don't understand what the spirit of the living Christ indwelling in me really means yet. But I know that if Jesus is urging us that it's good that he goes so that that can take place, that we should attempt to catch this vision of what he is offering us, to live in light of it, to have all of the things that are weighing so heavily on us and being able to say, I have the spirit of the living Christ within me, guiding me, moving me, encouraging me, blessing me, giving me peace and comfort, allowing me to experience the divine in new and uncharted ways in this moment. Perhaps we could rest in that than attempting to fabricate some miraculous work down into the future. Now, having said that, I will end with this. I do not believe that that impels us to stop praying for God to do ridiculous things in our lives. I don't think that that means that we therefore do not ask for healing and for relational issues to change. I don't think that that means that we just say, well, I've got the spirit of the living Christ within me, then whatever. I, I think that that should empower us to approach God, to ask for these big things. But I'm hopeful that we can hang out with that first bit where we have been empowered, that we have been, that we are indwelling within the spirit and that should be something that allows us to experience 
life in a new and crazy way. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of TRP's podcast. If you would like more information about the Restoration Project, we encourage you to visit our website at restoresby.org or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash restoresby, or spend some more time listening to past episodes of the podcast. If you have appreciated this or other episodes and would like to support the work that we do in Salisbury, Maryland, we invite you to review the podcast on iTunes. We aren't sure how it works, but we think people will be able to find us more easily online if you give us five stars. If that's not enough and you want to send us some money too, I mean, who are we to stand in the way? You can find ways to partner with us at give.restoresby.org.